you have your scriptures with me, turn to the book of Ephesians. Still working in the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. Just a short bit of text this morning. Well, let's read all of uh, verses 1 through 10, though, because we're still working in that section, and there's so much truth here. And Probably leave it alone after this week and get into the next section, because the next section is so... So, so all of it's relevant for today, um, but um, the Lord has just laid a lot through the second chapter of my heart, and I can't wait to get to it. Sometimes I should slow down a little bit. Even people say that I talk too fast sometimes. <laughs> Imagine that, a guy from the South talking too fast. Everybody accused me of being of the South from out here. There's a big difference between the Midwest and the South. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Read it with me, if you will. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, the greatest adversity in all of Scripture here, if you want to just circle that, and highlight it, but God, even though you were dead, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God has prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious heavenly fathers we come this morning. I just pray the excellencies of this truth be applied to the hearts of the people that are here today. Oh, what glorious things are written here in this passage. I want people to be encouraged. I want them to know that you never give up on us, that those of us who are yours, Father, you never quit saving us. And though we see it as as bleak at times, it's never been bleak to you because you see it from the beginning to the end and your work is sovereign and you're in total control of every situation and we're so out of control. Forgive us in our weaknesses, Father. We are your workmanship and you have done a great thing in us. As we study that this morning, speak to the heart of your people. Pass my simple words with a spirit that works in each one of us. And apply this truth to their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage is, is full of truth. It's, uh, I, I've said it along as we come off of chapter 1. Paul wants to remind these Ephesian believers who they used to be, what God has done. So he strikes this great adversative. They were dead. But God picked them up from the pits of hell because of his love and mercy for them and saved them. They were dead in the grave and, and, and further than the grave. They were, they were sons of disobedience following the prince of the power of the air. We talked about evil last week a lot. 
Because we get a theology of evil from here if we look to Jesus' words as well. So God took them from that place of destruction, eternal destruction, and seated them in the right hand of Jesus in the heavenly places, from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. And the first three chapters of Ephesians are just that, things that God have done for us. And then the last three chapters of Ephesians are things that God is requiring us to do. So there's so much truth in this second chapter and in these first three chapters in total uh, that the sermons that have been written on this are manifold. And I suspect we are just scratching the surface of the truth that is here. But all I want to do is focus on verse 10 this morning. Just focus on verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Listen, I'm, I'm going to describe what workmanship is because by and large today, we have lost what good craftsmen have done, what workmanship truly is. But this is an exalted workmanship. And I, I uh, as a man that began in the trades, I began making tools and engineering. And then I've loved to work with my hands all my life. And I've loved to see other people that work with their hands, whether welders or plumbers or heating and cooling guys, and, and I, like I'm just amazed at the work that Adam and Adam Jr. have been doing and all the plumbing of the new heaters that are going in this building. I think it's just marvelous to see good craftsmen do that work, uh, and, and it's just absolutely marvelous what God has given us gifts to be able to do that. But think about who is the great craftsman, the great designer, the master craftsman, what he's done in making us. That's what I want to talk a little bit about this morning. And then we see that, that sin has marred that creation, that making. From our perspective, it may even look ruined, and I think a lot of people think the world today is ruined. I'll tell you to right now, I'm going to give you a happy ending. It's not. It's going along exactly what God has planned for it to do. All right? He is not taken off guard or been surprised by anything that's been happening and not even the election last week. He knew exactly what was going to happen. In fact, uh, not a sparrow falls from the tree that God doesn't know about. So in Christ, he created you in Christ. And here it's in the past tense. That means that his workmanship would not be marred because before the foundations of the world, he had already recreated you in Jesus Christ. He already had a plan for our mess-ups. So when you go out today and you mess up again, he's already got a plan. He is a master. Listen, his workmanship, which, beloved, that's you. We're going to talk a lot more about that, probably two or three hours. There may not even be time for Christmas program practice today. You may feel messed up, but you're not. God's got you. You've already been recreated in Christ. The plan's going to work out. He's going to bring it all to fruition, right? So that's what it says here in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. What are good works? What's the biblical definition of good works? Now, I know, right? We're going to get to that because we've seen some great works by Christians in our history, to give you a little bit of a hint. But listen to me. Look at the last part. He prepared these beforehand for you to walk in. See, God's not surprised by our messing up with sin. We may look backwards and back up to God and say, well, in, in uh, 1987, I became a Christian and I learned who God was, but God knew me all my life. God had planned for me. He had planned Christ for me before the foundation. See, he is a master craftsman. For we are his workmanship. 
And so the goal here is to understand that the work that God gave man to do has never been changed. From the time he spoke with Adam in the garden till the time he spoke with Noah on the other side of the flood till the time he spoke with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17 until he spoke to David, until he spoke to Solomon, until he spoke to Paul, until he spoke to you, the plan has been the same for you. And we're going to learn that today. It's not messed up. And I don't want you to feel like it. When we look back to God, we can see... Oh, all the mistakes, but God's got it. He's recreated you in Christ. Sin's not going to thwart his plan, and he's going to carry out his plan in this place, not only for you, but for mankind. Amen? Amen. Amen. Listen, this is one promise I can make to you. This, this experiment that we're seeing play out in culture today, it's going to fail. It's going to implode. Secularism cannot exist. Anything that is void of the word of God will eventually fail. God promises that. God promises that just as he promises in Genesis 8.22 that seed time and harvest, day and night, heat and cold will remain the same until as the earth remains. He promises those things and they can't be thwarted by man. They can't be changed. Only God can do these things and he's doing these things in you. So when he says to Adam in 128 Genesis, be fruitful, multiply, be blessed, and all these things that I'm giving you, be fruitful, be, uh, uh, multiply, fill, and subdue, and have dominion over. He's saying the same thing to you. I don't care how much you've messed up, that's still your challenge for today. Okay? And we need to be about the work of God. Because as this passage ends, these are the good works that he has planned beforehand for you to do. Okay? We are his creation. His workmanship, I don't think that you can stop putting emphasis on that truth. We are his creation, his workmanship, and the, and the, the New Living Translation uses the word masterpiece. I kind of like that. You may not think you're a masterpiece, but I'm going to go ahead and think that I'm a masterpiece. As long as I think that God's doing that in me and me, not myself, I can call myself a masterpiece because that's exactly what the Greek word means. It's God's workmanship is not ever wrong. <laughs> It's always good. He created, and it was good indeed, very good. We are God's masterpiece, his handiwork, as the NIV translate the word this morning. We are his creation. We are the work of his hands. Now, God's a spirit. He don't have hands, but the anthropomorphic language in our Old Testament gives us these these word pictures that tells us that God created us. It was an intimate creation. He literally did it with his hands, like a master craftsman turns out a piece of wood on his lathe, right? It's, it, there's, there's much more to it than just him touching dirt with his hands. We are the work of his hands. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature, Scripture says. And then the covenant blessings. Not only are we a work of his hands, but we are over the work of his hands. Let me say that again. Not only are we the work of his hands, the intimate creation of him, but we are over all the works of his hands as man. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them. This is a blessing to us even today. The covenant is still with man. Uh, today, the same command that God gave Adam in the garden and gave Noah on the other side of the flood, and as I said earlier, still is in play. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We are the work of his hands. 
We are over the work of his hands, and we are the highest work of his hands. Psalms 8, verses 3 through 6, exalted language here about man. In fact, you have to look twice, maybe uh, pray about this some, but you might even think that this was talking about somebody else, but it's talking about God's workmanship in man. That cannot be thwarted. Listen to these words. David writes, when I look at your heavens, the marvelous splendor of the majesty of all creation, right? When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, what is man, mankind, that you're even mindful of him? And the son of man that you even care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And you have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That's where we are this morning, beloved. Sometimes we underestimate ourselves. Do you ever do that? I don't care what color you are, what size you are, where you were born, who were you born to. This is for you. This is for every Christian that God's working in. There's no secondary mention of creation here or some thoughtless inanimate object that's being spoken of. Here it is man as the ultimate creature of creation, the pinnacle of God's creative work. Might make a little note to the side, but this would take me way over today. But you can turn to Psalms 19. And in the first six verses there, God's talking about how nature exclaims his goodness and in the next verses, he talks about how he's revealing his goodness in Scripture to us. That will help you understand it even more, the exalted position of man. He, this master workman, God, created man. Not only did this physical and intimate creation involve the work of his hands, but of his mind and his will. There's no craftsman that creates something that just uses his hands to create it. Our mind is working through our hands to create what our mind sees and our will brings to existence. God is no different. So there was a sovereign purpose, number one, in the workmanship and that Paul speaks of here, and an eternal purpose in God's creating man. A sovereign purpose and an eternal purpose. Sovereign so much that God is in control even of man's sin, would not be able to thwart the plans of God in his creation. Eternal in that God's plan for man is to live and to go forever. God's covenant with man is eternal. God's plan for man is eternal. God is sovereign over man's sin. Man's sin cannot stop God's plan from being brought to completion in his work project of man. Okay? Oh, to be sure, they're scoffers. It's a new word that I started to use recently. I, you pick it up from Psalms 1. Uh, Blessed is a man that walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sets in the seat of scoffers. Man, are there a lot of scoffers alive today. They're the ones that just go around and say, well, nothing ever changes. I don't know why I should even try. Things are always going to be the same as they've always been. It's just getting worse and worse. Scoff, scoff, scoff. I don't know what I should do. And there's plenty of those people out there. Why did you make me this way, God? Because they're quick to work, look at this world of strife and, and fear and tumult in which we live, and they say that God's created man in such a way that there's only chaos. It's either Christ or chaos, we would say, but they look at it as only chaos. There's no hope in a Christ. 
These things seem to rule. Evil is at once everywhere, so to speak. But I tell you this morning, don't buy into their scoffing. Don't buy into their attitude because God's workmanship will not be let go of and undone. The man who thinks these thoughts, though, only does this because he has not encountered the one true God. We have it because we've encountered the one true God. He doesn't have it because he has not. Nor has he thought through what the true God has created in man, nor what the workmanship of God's was created for. He hasn't thought through these things. Intellectually, it can be seen, but it has to be understood and believed spiritually. You see, God was a craftsman, a workman, and we are his workmanship, his masterpiece. And this is true and beautiful and good and sovereign and eternal. Sovereign and eternal. God was a craftsman, a workman, and we are his workmanship, and this is true, beautiful, and good. It's not a mistake. You see, where I come from, and I know even here because I've met these men and women, this understanding belongs to most craftsmen who make things, who understand what true workmanship is and what true craftsmanship means, is, and does. It's not a flippant thing to make something and to, to craft it and to put all of your workmanship into it. It's meant for sovereign and eternal use. Whenever you make something of that level, you're not meaning for it just to be thrown away a week later, right? It's for a sovereign and eternal purpose that God has made us. And just because you might not understand exactly what God is doing, that doesn't make his creation any less a masterpiece. You're a masterpiece. I know, right? Come on. Oh, you're a masterpiece. You look at yourself and go, yeah, well, I used to be 50 years ago. Right? <laughs> You're a masterpiece. I had this, um, this great experience one time, and I've, I've had this often uh, through my engineering time, and, and, and I hope that you hear this illustration this morning for what it is. I, we, one time we visited the National Aeronautical and Space Museum, uh, Smithsonian, and I love planes, and I love jet propulsion, and I love studying those things. Um, space travel and air travel are just marvelous things. And, of course, they're the leading edge of technology. Uh, but there's, this is the place where I was humbled one day greatly uh, because there at the uh, National Aeronautical and Space Museum, I was looking at a bit of technology about airplane jet propulsion engines, and I thought to myself, you know, and you, you have to understand sometimes I be, kind of think too much of myself. My wife will tell you more about that. I'm, I'm apt to do that, especially in the engineering realm. I love stuff like this. This morning, after I came over here and had a time of prayer, and I'm going down a rabbit trail, but the Formula One race was on this morning, right? I love Formula One because those are the tip of the leading edge of the fastest cars on the planet. <sighs> All right. So I was looking at this stuff, and I thought to myself, you know, I could have made that. I look at things like that. I I'm, I look and say, well, that's made out of, they did, they had the thought, uh, this was the design, this is why they created it, had, everything has an end and a per yeah, I could have made that. And then I look at the date, and it was made 125 years before I even existed. <laughs> See, I was deciding I could make it on the, on the tooling and the equipment and the machinery that we have today, but what I was looking at is something that was so far technologically advanced that even the tooling and the machinery that I thought I could make it on was part of the design that had to go in to be bringing that thing into production. I was totally humbled. I was totally humbled when I understood 
the depth of the purpose and the design. And when this happens to an engineer, someone who can design or understand designs like that, immediately he has a higher respect for the original designer. That's what always happens with me. I look at something like that, I go, wow, he did that 150 years ago? Wow. I'm just boiled over. I'm humbled. And that respect only grows exponentially when whenever one considers the level of workmanship. Whenever one understands that, because we live in a world, and I think you have to be told these things at some level. You know, some people use their car and they don't even understand close to what the technology is that's in it and why cars are so much better than they are today. But once you have a little bit of understanding, you can appreciate the car more. You might even take care of it better. So what I find is this, that workmanship and craftsmanship has to be explained somewhat because we live in a throwaway society and a world that, 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 where this understanding, I think, is often long gone. It's disposable everything. But I'll digress back from that just a little bit. So what we find is that workmanship and craftsmanship implies something the Bible calls teleos. It's a Greek word, and unless you have an affinity for understanding these things, they need to be pointed out to you, as I said, because these things, these living truths, help you understand the living truths of what God's done in making you. What is teleos, you ask? Teleos is a term. Uh, it was often used by philosopher Aristotle uh, to refer to the final cause of all natural organs or entity or, of, or of even of good human work or art, craftsmanship or art. You see, Aristotle understood that if, if you continue to look into the beautiful and good, it would lead you to the highest, most beautiful good. Now, biblically, we believe that as well. If you're searching and seeking the good, the true and the beautiful, you're going to end at God. You have to end there. But teleos means that it's intentional. It's the actualization of potential or inherent purpose built into a thing. It's similar to an end goal of a thing or a person. In French, they call it raison d'etre. It's the reason for being or the most important reason for someone or something's existence. Listen, beloved, it's why you were made. Right? Your teleos is why you were made, the goal you were made for. And I will tell you that in a world of men and creation and creating, it is clear that Scripture teaches a direct link between God who is the infinite master creator over all, and man made in his image as little created creators because we mimic our God when we create. I could tell you this more specifically, and I meant to bring a hammer to the pulpit this morning, but if I held up a claw hammer and asked all of you, what is that claw hammer used for? You would say, drive nails. It's no differently. It's just as clear that God made us with an end or a telos or raison d'etre, a purpose of being. You see that? It's not hooey-fooey philosophy. It's biblical truth. God made us to drive nails, right? So when a person says that God messed up or has he created some kind of mess, that what was he thinking, right? Or why did he make me this way? Or look at this corrupt world and say, why doesn't God just fix it and stop it all, the evil? I mean... Don't tell me you haven't asked the same question, some of you. But you have to understand that this is man's ultimate end and the reason he is without peace and joy in this world because the peace and joy we have is directly proportionate to how we understand God and what he's doing and who we are and what we are here for. And the only right way to look at it is from the perspective of God 
as workman, master creator, and we as his handiwork. His craftsmanship, his masterpiece means that when we understand that none of this is a mistake, but part of the design, we will have understanding about the creator that we didn't once before have, and that brings peace and joy and fulfillment of being. And then the creature can understand the end a little better. And the creature can understand his telos, his raison d'etre of our existence. And you say, well, pastor, break that down for me because I don't understand all this stuff, right? I'm glad you asked. Because we can look at the creation. It's, we call this an engineering, reverse engineering. Whenever you look at something and you take it apart and look and see why it was made and what it was made for, you get a better understanding of, of that, that design and that workman that created that, that, uh, that whatever it is, that person or, or, or that uh, uh, production piece or that tool or that machine, whatever it is. Because when we look at creation and know the creator's intention and reverse engineer the problem, so to speak, that's where the dilemma is relieved. Why are we here? Why did God make us this way? And what are we to do? Why does it all seem so broken? Well, the Westminster Catechism pulls us in just a little bit here. It's very succinct. It says in these brief words, What is the chief end of man, the chief raison d'etre of man? It's to know God and enjoy him forever. To know God and enjoy for him forever. Well, when we understand that the chief end is a bit better, that is why I just explained it to you with the hammer. We understand the human telos, a reason for being. The reason why God made us was to know him and enjoy him forever. To know God is to know his will for man. To know what he wants for you. To know our difference between us and God and to know what he has called us to do. And to know everything that we need. Go to Genesis Chapter 1, just with me for a moment, because we're going to look at this just briefly. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Now, I had this passage for you a little earlier, but I want you to be in Genesis 9 just momentarily. See, when we know these things, we understand better who we are. God says, bless them, and God blessed them. That, that is, the man and woman that he created, Adam and Eve. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is the cultural mandate. That is what God wants us to do. That's the blessing. Be fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue the earth. That promise, that blessing has not ended today. That workmanship that God created us for is still in existence for man to accomplish and to complete. It was not only given to Adam, but turn over to Genesis chapter 9 beginning at verse 7. Genesis chapter 9, verse 7. And I'll tell you that on the other side of the flood, God had the same intention for man. Genesis chapter 9, verses 7. Do you see it there? God's covenant with Noah is the heading usually there at the end of chapter 8. But you know the story. Uh, the wickedness had grown great on the earth, and God judged the earth, and he saved Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives. And chapter 9 is where the flood comes to an end, and God's making his covenant, uh, renewing his covenant, not making a new one, but renewing his covenant with Noah and all of man that would follow. And this is what he says. See if they sound familiar. Verse 7, chapter 9, And you, Noah, your sons and his wives, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. See, that's not... That's not man as cancer on the planet. That's not man as the problem on the planet. 
That's not man the way culture would have us see man. This is just the opposite. God's saying, blow it up, man. God's saying, live, be fruitful, multiply, fill it, subdue it, multiply in it, be happy, be joyful, order it, build, create, be master craftsmen, be workers, make technology, make great things. All of it's going to bring me glory. That's what God is saying. And it was given to Adam in Genesis. It's given to Noah in chapter 9 because it's to come on to us even today. This design, this plan, this master planner, this master workman has built us for this mission. Verse 8, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. That's us, by the way. We all go back through Noah to Adam and Eve. After you, and with that, verse 10, and then with every living creature that is with you, the birds, livestock, beasts of the earth, with you, so as, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of the flood, and never again shall there be flood to destroy the earth. This is God working. His workmanship has not changed. This is God's sovereign purpose for man, and it is not ended. But God also had eternal purpose in it, and that he takes us through the rest of the passage in Ephesians 2.10. So back to Ephesians with me, if you will. We're just going to work through the, the, the rest of that verse and show you how all this gets put together. Ephesians 2.10. And this is where just a little bit of perspective is needed, I suspect. Because what has happened is sin has corrupted everything. Sin has made us totally different. Sin is such a, and it's no noetic effect on the mind as such, that we need to be saved. Sin is, and it's no noetic effect on the human being, is such that God had to do something for us so that we could complete the mission uh, of the original project. Again, I tell you, this didn't take God by surprise because that's why the rest of this passage is in the past tense. That's why these good works that God called us to do was planned beforehand, before, before you knew who God was, before God sent his son to die on the cross. And Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 would tell us before the foundations of the world that God had created us together in Christ. God understood that this was part of the design, that he would have to recreate us in his son. And when he does that, not only is something different within us as man living today, but something eternal has been changed in us is that we will be with God forever. It's that great adversative that we see in verse 4. But God, because of his mercy and love he has done these things to us and this is the perspective we need the reason that most of the world sees it as chaos is because they don't understand we understand sin we understand the way it works in the mind we understand how it's separated us from God and what God has done to bring us back together in Christ but we have to see it from God's perspective this creation this workmanship was eternal and sovereign and because man will live eternally we can pull many truths from just that one proposition. The first, that if man were to be eternal vessels, he must have eternal purpose. Thus, the work of God has given man to do, the reason for the purpose of man or in man is eternal. We see that it's sovereign, sovereign even over sin and all the evil in this world, but it's also eternal. That helps us understand the purpose. The original design of man was not a mistake that had an unknown defect to God. For God knew that we would sin and indeed allowed sin. Moreover, he planned it so that he would get glory from it because he'd save us in his son, Jesus Christ. 
That's how good of a God we serve. This is an extraordinary truth for many reasons, but for the purpose of our short time left together this morning and the text before us today, the perspective that man had within himself before the fall, what God had given him to do, and the ability to do it is rather remarkable truth that many Christians, I believe, fail to grasp fully. This means if God gave the Adam the ability to fill and subdue and have dominion over the earth, he gave Adam the means to accomplish that end. And though that was lost in sin, God has given it back to us. Because see it there in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, recreated in Christ. That is, that through grace we can accomplish what God called Adam to do. God was not caught off guard by Adam's sin. This is why it's in the past tense here. That's why these good works were prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them, that we should live in them. Beloved, you're a sinner. And sin has disordered every bit of your life. You were supposed to order your life around God and what he had called you to do. You are supposed to be fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue, and have dominion. And your sin had taken you off track in this work. Not only your sin, but the sins that were sinned against you by people around you. They've drastically taken you off course of what God created you for, the end, the raison d'etre, the purpose, beloved, the end. The, the, you were lost. But God, God recreated you in Christ. God brought his son to die on the cross of Calvary to suffer all of the punishment that we deserved. He lived for about 33 years on this planet and he was tested every moment of that time and found perfect. He fulfilled what the first Adam failed to do and it is through him and through the grace of God that he gives us back what we need to do what the first Adam was called to do. Not only does he seat us in the heavenlies with the, uh, at the right hand of Christ where he intercedes continually, but he gives us through grace what we need to carry out the work of the design he intended here in this place. Those good works. And you say, well, that's not me. It is you, beloved. He's rich in mercy and great in love. This is the gospel. And it is the mechanism that changes the creation to the creation that does the good works. Do you see that? It was God's plan all along. I want to tell you something. We're going to talk more about this tonight in the evening service. This is a tease, so you'll come back tonight. What time does it start? Six o'clock, right? <laughs> a Christian cannot sin. Oh, we make mistakes. Don't get me wrong. But we, not can, we cannot continue in sin because of what the gospel's done in us through grace. Because if you continue in sin, that burden on your heart is going to be so heavy you can't bear it. It's going to create, literally create psychological pain. I told the Sunday school this this morning, and we're going to talk more about this tonight. But Christians are the only ones that can do good works. 
Because it's through faith that we can please God, Hebrews 11.6. Look that up when you get a minute. That is the chapter that tells of all the men and women of faith. It is through faith that we can please God, and it is through faith that we believe in Christ, and it is through faith because of his mercy and love that he has given us grace in Christ so that we can do these good works. And you say, well, what are these good works? You ever heard of a college named Harvard there in Cambridge, Massachusetts? How about Yale and New Haven or Princeton up in Elizabeth? How about William and Mary in Virginia? All of these schools were created. Listen, these are not little works. All of these schools were created by who? By secularism? No. By Christians. These are the good works that Scripture is talking about. They're not small goals. They're goals that fit what God has called us to do. Their goals that more fit, be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, have dominion over, order that thing. It's all for your good, and it's all for my glory. Live, be happy, be free, have joy. Even in a world of sin, God has given you that back in Jesus Christ. And you can do good works because he's, he has deliberately set those in you beforehand so that when he recreated you in Christ that you would do those things. Listen, let me say a few names of hospitals this morning. St. Vincent's, St. Luke's, Mount Sinai, Presbyterian Hospital, Mercy, Beth Israel. Anybody heard of the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, Samaritan's Purse? Who started those things? Those are great works that have done great things among our time. And this is what God is talking about to fill, subdue, and have dominion over. It begins with you, it begins with your family, it goes out to church community and to what God has called us to do. I think, don't think too small, please. God has given man a purpose to be fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue, and have dominion. Bring him glory and enjoy him forever. And it's all to the praise of his name. Man diminished that purpose because sin came into the world, but God has given it back to us in Christ. Because he's the great master workman, even God hath united man in his sin to his beloved son. He has made beautiful what has been corrupted. He has made good what was once bad. He has made beautiful our lives, beloved, so that we can do good works. I promise you the current system we see, we live in a time of great difficulty. The system we see will fail. It's just a matter of time. It will implode upon itself. So what are we called to do in the meanwhile? Don't waste your life, beloved. The gospel saved you. It will restore you. And it will give you great power to be fruitful, to multiply, fill, and subdue. I've got one thing left. Your labor is never in vain in Christ. It may look like it to the world, but keep plotting, beloved. Keep moving along. Keep believing. Keep being that master creation that the master creator created. Keep doing good works. Every day when you get up, keep doing it. Keep doing it. For in the end we will reap the scripture's promise. It will not be in vain. All of your labor in the Lord is never in vain. Please remember that the measure of our success here and for the Christian is not necessarily a visible victory in this place and time and space. But it is faithfulness. God will judge you on your faithfulness and give him that faithfulness and let him handle the outcome of all your good works. Okay? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, I think it marvelous that we, we see in one word, workmanship, the great purpose that you had for us. And Father, when we look at a world of sin and tumult and fear and chaos, oh, it's so hard sometimes to see victory in that, but you've given it. It's no less sure today than when the day you first promised. And we'll all see it and behold it one day. Father, may we be a people faithful. May we do the works that you've called us to do. May we be about the business here at Park Bible Baptist Church of being fruitful, multiplying, filling. I love that word, filling with children, filling with great and good works of art, filling with great and beautiful buildings and churches, filling with great technology that helps the lame to walk and the blind to see, filling with your goodness, filling with the knowledge of you as the waters cover the sea, filling this place for your glory. Father, let us not be short of that mission and that, that goal that you've given us. Let us not be weak people in this place who cannot stand. Let us stand Call your people to that, Father. Bring that spirit amongst us even again at this moment. Let us understand the great work that you've done in us so that we can do the great work that brings you glory in this place. Thank you for your people this morning, Father, their beloved and precious.